Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, June 2nd through Saturday, June 4th, feature guest conductor Esabeka Solonen, joined by the Chicago Symphony Chorus in a program including the first Chicago Symphony Orchestra performances of Caroline Shaw's Entract, Solonen's own Gemini, and after intermission, the ballet score Duff de saint Chloe by Maurice Ravel. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Esapekka Solonen's Gemini, a work lasting about 22 minutes. Chicago audiences first knew Esapekka Solonen as a conductor for his Chicago Symphony Orchestra debut in 1988. He led music by Haydn, Bartok, and Nielsen. Solonen didn't conduct one of his own scores here until 2003, when he gave the U.S. premiere of Insomnia, a dark and turbulent nocturne he had composed the year before. Since then, we have learned to identify him as one of the few major musical figures today who is both a composer and a conductor of distinction, a combination that was once a staple of the music world, but has become increasingly rare. When Solonen entered the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki in the 1970s, it was to study horn and composition. He enrolled in Jorma Pandula's conducting class because he felt that young composers should learn to lead their own works. Composing remained Solonen's focus. In Helsinki, he studied with the visionary Anjuhani Rautavara, and in the early 1980s, he worked with Niccolo Castagnoli in Milan and in the Finnish Broadcasting Company studios. His earliest large-scale orchestral works date from this time. Then, after leading an acclaimed performance of Mahler's Third Symphony on short notice in London in 1983, Solonen soon became an internationally known conductor for whom composing was a sideline. More than a decade passed before he found the time to complete another major work, the L.A. Variations, written to showcase the Los Angeles Philharmonic, of which he was music director at the time of its premiere in 1997. Solonen continues to negotiate balancing the two sides of his musical life. It is a battle that has been famously fought before by figures as different in their solutions and in the music they wrote as Gustav Mahler, Leonard Bernstein, and Pierre Boulez. After Solonen took a year's sabbatical from conducting in 2000 in order to devote himself full-time to writing music, he admitted that he felt it impossible to work on both sides simultaneously. But the past few years have also erased any doubts that one cannot excel at both. The age-old suspicion Solonen has often encountered that if you do two things, one must be fake, surely, because nobody can do two things well. As he told the New York Times recently, it's a strange statement to make because you go a hundred years back and every musician was also a composer. Today, Solonen continues to conduct a handful of orchestras with which he has had long and satisfying relationships, including the Los Angeles Orchestra, of which he is now Conductor Laureate, and the Chicago Symphony. Solonen is Principal Conductor and Artistic Advisor of the Philharmonia Orchestra in London and is Music Director of the San Francisco Symphony, a post he assumed in 2020. When he was awarded the prestigious Nemers Prize in Music Composition by the Benin School of Music at Northwestern University in 2014, he said in his acceptance remarks that the Chicago Orchestra has long been a musical home away from home for me.
In recent years, Solonen has conducted many of his major works in Chicago, including three concertos played here by their original performers, pianist Jeffing Bronfman in 2008, violinist Lila Josefowitz in 2011, and Yo-Yo Ma in the world premiere of the Cello Concerto in 2017, as well as Nix in 2014 and Foreign Bodies in 2016. Gemini is his most recent large-scale orchestral work. And here is Esapekka Solonen on Gemini. Solonen writes, During the composition process of Pollux, I encountered a strange problem. My material seemed to want to grow into completely opposite directions. Finally, I realized that these very different musical identities, I had referred to them as brothers in my sketches, would not fit into one cohesive formal unit, a single piece. They simply couldn't coexist. This made me think of the myth of the non-identical twins, Castor and Pollux, who share half of their DNA but have some extreme phenotype differences and experience dramatically different fates. In the Greco-Roman mythology, Pollux was immortal as he was fathered by Zeus. Castor was mortal as he was sired by Tyndareus, the king of Sparta, although his status changed post-mortem. The mother of both was Leda, who, while being already pregnant by her husband, had a tryst with Zeus, who seduced her in the form of a swan. There's something intriguing in the idea of this famed beauty having a penchant for large water birds. My solution was to write two independent but genetically linked orchestral works. Pollux, slow and quite dark in expression, was the first of them. Pollux has a ritualistic character based on a mantra rhythm I heard some months ago during dinner in a restaurant in the 11th arrondissement in Paris. A post-grunge band played on the background track, and I wrote down the bass line on a paper napkin, not knowing exactly what it was and who the musicians were. I couldn't get it out of my head and decided to use a heavily modified version of it in Pollux. The pattern has been distilled to pure rhythm and slowed down to less than a quarter speed of the original. Another source of material is a chorale, here wordless, based on the first lines of Rilke's Sonnet to Orpheus. There rose a tree, O pure transcendence, O Orpheus sings, O tall tree in the ear. That was very taken by the funny and surreal Salvador Dali-like image of a tree growing out of the ear. The metaphor is far from obvious, but it is clear that Orpheus can unify art and nature by the sheer force of his song. Every musician I know would like to be able to do that. Pollux oscillates between cloud-like formations, that's where demigods dwell, and more clearly defined textures of the Orpheus music. After the final fortissimo incarnation of the chorale, a nostalgic English horn solo brings Pollux home. At the very end, there's an Aeolian echo, a scale used in ancient Greece, a simple chord consisting of natural harmonics in the strings. I was trying to imagine something much older than most music. Castor is the mortal twin brother of Pollux. They share their musical DNA, but Castor introduces some completely independent material. Castor is mostly hyperactive, noisy, and extroverted. 
The music gesticulates wildly, often in extreme registers. Two pair of timpani and two bass drums are the rhythmic fundament upon which freer ornamental lines build. A light, dance-like episode develops into a manic episode dominated by a trochee figure. It burns itself out and sinks into a low B-flat, the second lowest note on the piano. A massive cannon fortissimo starts in the strings and the horns, rises to the orchestra's highest range, and sinks into an abyss. Castor can be played separately as an independent short orchestral work or following Pollux without pause, Ataka. The two pieces performed together are called Gemini, not surprisingly. Esapeka Solonen and Philip Huscher on Solonen's Gemini. And now on to a choreographic symphony in three parts, the ballet score Daphis and Chloe by Maurice Ravel. The music lasts about 50 minutes. Maurice Ravel wrote home from his first tour of America in 1928, I am seeing magnificent cities, enchanting country, but the triumphs are fatiguing. Besides, I am dying of hunger. Although he found the food alarming, Ravel traveled with his own favorite wines and cigarettes, and the pace relentless, in city after city, Ravel was reminded of the extent of his celebrity. At the matinee concert of the Chicago Symphony on January 20, 1928, Ravel accepted enthusiastic applause throughout the afternoon, a standing ovation at the conclusion of the program, and a fanfare from the orchestra he conducted. The second performance the following night started a good half hour late because Ravel, a famously impeccable dresser, discovered that he had left his evening shoes in a trunk at the train station and would not go on stage until they had been retrieved by his Scheherazade soloist, Lisa Roma, no less. The Chicago Symphony program included as its centerpiece the second suite from the ballet Dathis and Chloe, which Ravel later called his most important score. Ravel wrote Daphnis and Chloe for Sergei Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe. It was begun in 1909, before Diaghilev's troupe had set Paris ablaze with a series of new ballets unlike anything the worlds of music and dance had known, starting with Stravinsky's Firebird in 1910 and climaxing with the scandalous premiere of The Rite of Spring in May 1913. Ravel's Nathis and Chloe wasn't introduced until June 8, 1912, due to the composer's difficulty in finishing the score, compounded by backstage squabbling once rehearsals began. Although Daphnis and Chloe wasn't well-received, that date isn't engraved in music history because this isn't music to provoke fistfights or catcalls. The principal players in the creation of Daphnis and Chloe were a distinguished group, Sergei Diaghilev, the impresario, Michel Fauquin, the choreographer, Leon Bakst, the designer, Pierre Monteur, the conductor, and Václav Nijinsky and Tamaro Karsavina, the leading dancers. Ravel worked tirelessly with Fauquin to translate the most famous of the Greek prose pastorals into a scenario for ballet. The collaboration partly hampered, as the composer admitted, because Fauquin doesn't know a word of French, and I only know how to swear in Russian. At first, there was also a serious difference of opinion about the style of the piece. My intention in writing Deathless and Chloe, Ravel later said, was to compose a vast musical fresco in which I was less concerned with archaism than with reproducing faithfully the Greece of my dreams, which is very similar to that imagined by French artists at the beginning of the 18th century. 
But Folkine had in mind the ancient dancing depicted in red and black on attic vases. The result has something of the classical austerity of Jacques-Louis David's canvases as well as the stunning clarity of Greek pottery. But it is both more sumptuous and subtle than either. In rehearsal, Fokin and Dijinsky fought endlessly over the choreography, and Diaghilev grew so tired of serving as intermediary that he finally threatened to cancel the project. As it was, he was forced to postpone the premiere twice, largely because Ravel was having trouble completing the final dance, on which, by the first rehearsals, he had labored for a full year. And then, when the music was delivered at last, Diaghilev's dancers were stymied by the finale's asymmetrical 5-4 meter. Ravel suggested chanting Sergei Diaghilev to each measure to help them keep their place. Ultimately, the rancor and tension of the Daphnis rehearsals led to a rift between Diaghilev and Fokin, who left the company at the end of the season. Daphnis and Chloe is the largest orchestral work Ravel would write. He called it a choreographic symphony in three parts, and in its scale and developmental detail, it is as close as he ever came to tackling symphonic form. The work is constructed symphonically, Ravel said at the time, out of a small number of themes, the development of which ensures the work's homogeneity. Although Ravel arranged two sets of symphonic fragments from the ballet for the concert hall, it was the second suite that the Chicago Symphony played under his baton in 1928. Only the complete ballet score, performed with the wordless chorus Ravel reluctantly labeled optional for practical considerations, reveals the full brilliance of the composer's achievement. The chorus is included at these performances. Daphnis and Chloe is perhaps the greatest example of Ravel's remarkable ear for orchestral sounds and of the subtlety with which he shades and colors his canvas. Few passages in music are as justifiably famous as the opening of Part Three, when the rising sun gently bathes the music in warmth and light. The use of a wordless chorus, not only in that scene, but at several key moments in the ballet, creates an extraordinary sonority remarkable for its great shimmering gradations of color. The device is not original. Debussy's Printemps and his third nocturne, Sirene, were both written more than a decade earlier, but no other work, including Holst's Planets or Scriabin's Prometheus, has made greater use of the effect. The chorus is used not only as an additional orchestral color, but it also sings unaccompanied as well, in a wonderfully mysterious and evocative moment at the beginning of part two. The story is adapted from a tale by the 5th century Greek author Longus. Daphnis and Chloe, abandoned as children and reared by shepherds, have fallen in love. Daphnis seduced Chloe by playing for her on his panpipes. In the first part of the ballet, Daphnis earns Chloe's kiss, pirate's land, and abduct Chloe. In part two, Pan and his warriors rescue Chloe, and part three reunites the lovers. Program notes by Philip Usher on Daphnis and Chloe, ballet score by Maurice Ravel. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.